Let's go ahead and begin. First, I want to welcome everyone here. Uh, been extend a special welcome to any visitors who are here, uh, especially those who may be here for the graduation ceremonies this weekend. I offer my congratulations to the students and the families of the students who have completed their education here. and wish them well in the job market or any further education. Welcome those listening online. Welcome and happy Sabbath. Let's start with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pause uh, on this Sabbath day to, first of all, thank you for this day and what it represents. Thank you for giving us one day in seven to stop uh, from our daily toils and reflect on a God of freedom, uh, a God of love, uh, and a God of grace. Uh, I want to ask that you be with Tim and Christy as they present the, our message to the folks in Michigan. Uh, send uh, your Holy Spirit as an extra measure to touch the hearts of those who um, may be resistant to the message of a God of love and not a punitive God. Um, thank you for not being the God that uh, you have been presented. Guide us today in our discussion. Uh, be with the, our class corporately and individually. When you come again, may we all be standing ready. In Christ's name, amen. Talking about grace, we're in lesson number seven. It's entitled Grace. I was kind of curious about the origins of the of the term grace. So I got my trusty Strong's Concordance and looked up the Hebrew term for the word grace. It comes from the Hebrew uh, word is pronounced Hain, K-H-A-N-E, and whatever Hebrew symbol they use, uh, but the pronunciation is Hain. The definition is favor, pleasant, precious, or well-favored. And the first first place we see this term used, this kind used, is in uh, Genesis with reference to Noah. And uh, King James Version said, Noah found grace in God's sight. The meaning was Noah was favored. Noah was well-favored in God's sight. Um, probably the more more recognized definition of grace comes from the Greek. Um, and this is, this is the term that is used most often in the New Testament. The Greek word is pronounced charis, or charis. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing here, it's an educated guess, but I'm guessing that this is where we get the, uh, this is the root for the word charity. But I don't know that for certain. And any linguist in here, feel free to correct me. This is defined as a manner or act of a divine influence on the heart and its reflection on life. Uh, it's also synonymous with acceptable, benefit, favor, gift, joy, liberality, pleasure, and thanks. Someone read the memory text for Sabbath's lesson, please, and then we're actually going to skip to Friday. <laughs> But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 Okay, this is from the King James Version. Does anyone have the New International Version? Or a different version? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay. I had no idea what commendeth me meant, so I looked it up in the IV, and it says God demonstrates his love. We have 
We have numerous texts uh, in, in the Bible, especially in the Gospel of John, that state that God is love. Well, we can state all sorts of things, but it doesn't necessarily make them true. Here in Romans, we see an actual demonstration, evidence of God's love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. What what does this what does this mean for you guys? Anything special? Yes. Well, demonstrations are an action of who you are inside. Your actions confirm your inward feelings. Okay. Behavior evidences um, what's written on the heart. In other words. Okay. Good. Any other thoughts on the meanings of this text? No? All right. I want to skip to Friday's lesson. Someone read the discussion question number one. Friday's lesson. Some people are offended by the idea that God demanded the life of the Son's payment for the sins of humankind. That, though, is one of the images used by the Bible, so we must take it. What should the image tell us about the seriousness of sin and how costly our redemption was? Is anyone in here aware of, of the text that suggests that God demanded the life of his son as a payment for the sins of humankind? Yes. I asked this one out when I went there. <laughs> I was thinking, and it won't be as good as one of Tim's analogies, but here's a man who has ten sons. He loves all of them. One of the sons is just God's own boy, his, the father's own boy. He just loves him to pieces. But the other nine sons are just rotten throughout and has done every evil thing in the world. And so this father has these other nine sons kill the, kill the littlest, the, the youngest, the nicest one, and then he says, okay, you, you're all forgiven even though you're living like this. Because you paid me for killing my good son. That's that's my analogy. <laughs> okay, good. Um, any other thoughts on if there's anywhere in Scripture? Now, I'm not aware of anything. Just because I'm not aware of anything in Scripture doesn't mean there isn't something there. But is there anyone in here that's aware of a passage or text that that? Imp- outright states or even implies that God demanded a payment for the sins of humankind to his son. Dr. Moses. Uh, when I read the question, I put where. But I have to realize that um, it depends on what colored glasses you are wearing. I think many people, and I think this, this lesson used it repeatedly, um, Isaiah 53. Mm-hmm. If you read Isaiah 53, 5 or 6, or right in that range... With the right colored glasses, you can under, you can take your understanding of something and then put it onto the text you're reading. Mm-hmm. Because of our sins, he was wounded, beaten because of the evil we did. We are healed by the punishment of he suffered, made whole by the blows he received. And you know, if you already have an understanding mm-hmm. that this is what happened. Mm-hmm. then that just reinforces your understanding. It doesn't say that. Right. Is, is that the chapter where it says earlier, it says, we esteemed him as stricken by God? Yeah. Right. 
it depends what colored glasses you're wearing. Correct. Um, I would submit that the glasses worn by the author are dark, <laughs> opaque. Yes. In Revelation, it says that Jesus, uh, the Father, forgave our sins before the foundation of the world. Excellent. So therefore, was it something that he demanded, or was it a choice that they made to forgive us even if we chose to sin? Well said. Thank you. Um, yes, sir. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Okay. Whose blood? My blood? Satan's blood? A lot of people read in it, and of course it was Christ's blood. Okay. One of the translations actually says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. I think the New International Version says that. Uh, the original, the King James says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission from sin. And we've been over this before. The, the cancer analogy is, is a great one that um, if you're infected with cancer and you go to your physician to heal you, you want the cancer to remit. You want your body to remit back to its precancerous state and to a state of health. If you went to, if you went to a physician and he diagnosed you correctly with cancer and he told you, well, I have diagnosed you with lung cancer. I forgive you for having lung cancer. Have a nice afternoon. How would you feel? I'd still feel cancerous. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, you want the, you go to a physician to be healed. This is, there are so many ways that the legal model breaks down. And you know, maybe maybe I'm coming to it from a healthcare bias because I work in healthcare. But the healthcare bi uh, model of salvation makes a whole lot more sense to me. Any other thoughts on on this question? Um, any other text that I'm not aware of? God demands a payment. Yes, ma'am. Um, Hebrews nine. Okay. Fourteen says, "For as the blood of the bulls and the goats and the ashes of a head is sprinkled upon." All right. That text doesn't say that God demanded the payment, that the Christ offered himself. And Christ being fully God uh, indicates that God offered himself. Yes, sir. First of all, we never, ever, no matter what we do, can repay God for what he has done for us. But in a way, indirect, he is asking for a payment when he said, keep my commandments. If you keep his commandments, you will be rewarded. Otherwise, you are repaying, you are appreciating, you are showing him that you love him and you keep his commandments. Okay. Let me ask you this. Are you a parent... Okay. Did you have a rule about brushing your teeth in your household when your when your children were two, three years old? Yes. Okay. Um, 
as your children got older and started to come into a better understanding of the laws of health and maybe to a, to a lesser degree, the laws of physics, the second law of thermodynamics, which states that things tend to disorder, did they still brush your teeth because mom and dad had a rule in the house, a commandment that the teeth needed to be brushed, or did they come to an understanding that if they didn't brush the teeth, there would be consequences to the teeth and to their health? Correct. And th- and that's I think that's the point that God wants us to be at, to come to, is to come to an understanding that the Ten Commandments are, are merely a, a a distillation, a revelation of the character and the love of God, and that when we come to an understanding that God has been working from the beginning of time to heal to heal humanity. The, the obeying of the Ten Commandments will, will come apart, come about as a result of the transformation that has occurred within us, not as a, not as an obligation to, not as out of a fear of punishment for not obeying the Ten Commandments or a hope for reward with being, obeying the Ten Commandments. We'll come to an understanding, a harmony with His ways and methods and principles that the, the Ten Commandments will be observed because they're, they're part of our character now. Don't get me wrong, because I say this first. We will never be able to repay him. But we think of the Old Testament for those who did not keep his commandments. I mean, they were stoned. They were burnt, and everything else happened to them. But if they had to keep God's commandment, that was like a repay or thank you for what you have done. Yes, sir. Question. To get back to your payment Mm -hmm. In the Garden of Gethsemane, three times Jesus prayed to his father saying, I really don't want to have to do this. Okay. And he said, but not my will, God, thy will be done. The father didn't say, why don't you just walk out of the garden and come on back home? The father said, I want you to go through with this plan. Maybe, maybe we can't read that word for word in scripture, but that was what it boiled down to. All right. First of all, let's go back to the, well, the struggle that was occurring within within Christ's being, within his heart and mind. He was struggling to do what? His humanity was wanting, what was his humanity wanting? To save self. His humanity was struggling with fear and selfishness. Okay, These, these are the things that Christ was tempted with, just like you and I are, struggling to save self. His divinity was... At war with this, these two, these two natures, these two combative and antagonistic governments and principles were a war inside his head and heart. God wanted him to go through with it simply because why? Why did God want him to continue on the path that Christ himself had chosen? Because if he didn't, humanity would be lost. Why? Why would humanity be lost? Because the sacrifice that he was the only fitting sacrifice that could save humanity. Why? Because uh, oh. we could not save ourselves. That's that's correct. We we could not save ourselves. We we humanity was so darkened in sin, and sin, and we had believed so many lies about the nature and the character of God that we could not save ourselves ever. Christ did have to die. He had to go all the way to death. I, I think it's really important to remember that 
Christ's death happened because of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And the cross was a demonstration of Satan's character, God's character. And if he had not died, we wouldn't have seen the full impact of Satan's character, and the idol of the universe wouldn't have seen it. Thank you. Very well said. Not only will we not have seen the the full manifestation of Satan's character, but we would not have seen the full manifestation of God's character either. If at any point along the, the pathway to death, Christ had used his power to save himself, Satan would have been right about him. Satan would have been correct. And I grew up thinking that Christ's resurrection was a an acknowledgement that the the God the Father found this sacrifice acceptable and pleasing. I have since come to a realization that the resurrection of Christ was a result of the life that he led and the and the pathway that he chose in taking the revelation of God's character all the way from birth to death and defeating sin and selfishness within his character, resurrection was the only thing that could result from that. And that's what we have to look forward to. Yeah, we may go to sleep for a while, just like Christ did. Christ rested for a few hours. And he was resurrected because it was a result of the life and the character that he led and the character he developed. Dr. Moses. It was not only a demonstration, but it was a process by which we are healed. Oh, absolutely. And so, um, you know, Paul says, if you truly love, you keep the law. There is, there's nothing in the law that goes against um, love. And so, if we truly love, if we truly are living for others, and are part of God's network of helping others, then... We will do everything contained in the Ten Commandments without it being a checklist mm-hmm. by which we were grading ourselves. The, um, you know, I think the medical analogy here is excellent. The Ten Commandments are a scanner, an MRI scanner that detects sin in our lives. And it, sometimes we are so blind that we cannot see things that are going on in our lives. And without the law, to show us, we would not detect that. And this is exactly what Paul said. I mean, he had no idea what covetousness was until he, he read it in the law, and he discovered that I covet. Yes, sir. I don't know that they're nothing more than a scanner, but but they, they are an excellent diagnostic tool. Um, then what are they scanning for? What are What is actually the Ten Commandments scanning for? It's showing us that we don't have love like God has. That's what they're all based on. It's based on love. Love for God and love for man. And that's what it's diagnosing, is that we don't have that love. And that's what we're missing. Okay, good. Any other thoughts or brilliant glimpses of the obvious? And that's why the law can't save you, because it's only showing you what's wrong, and then the Savior is the one that saves you. 
Okay, let's uh, go to Sunday's lesson. We've touched on this a little bit. The, the first paragraph talks about Abraham's call to um, take Isaac and sacrifice him on the mountain. And his prophetic words that God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. My question was, did God actually provide a lamb for salvation for us, or did the lamb volunteer itself? What's that? Both. Okay, explain. God was not objecting. He agreed to it, but Christ did offer himself. But God, God was consenting for the offer. Maybe, have you ever considered the possibility that God himself may have wanted to come? Yes, but he couldn't. Christ was the one that the accusations were made against, and he was the one that had to answer the questions that were raised about him. Okay, good. First of all, I agree with your I agree with your statement that it is it is both. The lamb volunteered, um, and Christ and God are, are equal in love and wisdom and, and infinity and majesty and et cetera, et cetera. So God Himself God did provide the lamb. Who who were the um, allegations? Made against uh, in by Lucifer in heaven. Yes, God, as a unified being. So whether you you level it at Christ or whether you level it at God the Father or God the Spirit, you're leveling your accusations about the same thing. Okay. And yet, if you value Ellen White's writings, and I do. Um, and Tim mentioned this last week, uh, you can get some astonishing insights by reading the first chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets. Lucifer had took issue with the elevated status that God gave Christ in heaven. Lucifer, as a created being, thought that he should have a similar status in heaven. And he worked skillfully and and for a long time to change the minds of the angels and to insinuate that he deserved the same recognition as Christ did. Comment? Well, you know, it amazes me, because I hadn't thought of it in the, you know, when I was younger, that God's only, only way we can know God is through communication from God. And the Bible calls... That was your mom, Tim. <laughs> the Bible calls... Um, <laughs> says that, that God became an angel, I think, to let the angels know in the form of Michael. He was God becoming an angel. And they all identified with him. And they began to understand him more because he became an angel. Then it had to be him that came to earth because through him the earth was created. And through, he was the visible, you know, what the angels identified with. Then he became a man, so we could identify with him. And he will stay a man, so we could continue to identify with him. But it had to be Christ, because Christ was the identifiable thing to the angels, and he was the one through whom this earth was created. So he 
that part of God has was the most um, the, the communication form of God that was attacked, and uh, so he, the communication form, had to be the the one part of the Godhead who demonstrated himself. You know, his abilities to go lower and lower and show people God. And isn't it possible that if God did such a superior job of disguising himself as a man that the the church leaders at the time didn't recognize God and they nailed him to a cross, is it also possible that he could do such a great job as disguising himself as an angel in the form of the archangel Michael that the angels recognized him only as an angel? And it was only when the allegations of Lucifer against Christ that, that Christ that God said, okay, time out. This being is has been with me from the beginning. He always has been. He always will be. Lucifer was first of creation. The rest of you are created beings. Isn't that possible? I I, I agree with what you're saying. I I I reserve a little bit about your word of disguise. Okay. That may have been a poor choice. He truly became man. He truly became one of Okay, excellent point. Correct. You know, and, and he didn't cloak himself. He didn't cloak his deity in the garb of, with skin and bones. Correct. Thank you. And, and for eternity, I don't know that we will need him to be a man, but that is a supreme evidence of who he is. This action of becoming a man and being willing to sacrifice himself in a way beyond what we can comprehend is his supreme demonstration of who he truly is as God. And so his continued being a human form will speak for eternity mm-hmm. of who he truly is. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I want to make it clear that I am not advancing the theology that Christ did not sacrifice something in order to come here and save humanity. He sacrificed an astonishing de- uh, amount that we, will, that we will spend eternity trying to comprehend. My understanding is he sacrificed uh, omnipresence in taking on human form. Uh, scripture says that he did, he did not consider being equal with God something worthy of being grasped. And he humbled himself to death, even a death on the cross. Any other thoughts? That goes to the fact that it was not a payment. But it certainly costs Christ a whole lot. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. His, 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 he was humble. <coughs> he took on poverty. He, he lost everything that he had in heaven. Yes, he did. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to say that I, that I am advancing the idea that Christ did not sacrifice something because he did. In the part of the teacher's quarterly here, as part of our development of understanding of grace, it quotes uh, Isaiah fifty three twelve. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It is through his suffering on our behalf that we can claim eternal life. Does this seem just to you? And why or why not? First of all, where in Scripture does it uh, does Christ give a definition for what eternal life is? Because he comes right out of his mouth. You know, in this life eternal. John seventeen three yes, 
Now this is life eternal. See, he's using the present tense. He hadn't died yet. He's using the present tense. This is life eternal, that you know the one true God and him who thou hast sent, Jesus Christ, his son. Let me ask you guys the question the lesson asks. Does it seem just that through his suffering we can claim eternal life? Or is this, is this a, a rational statement? Can we claim eternal life otherwise? Yes. I don't believe it's just because the Lord says he demands less than what your iniquity deserves. So is it just that we go to heaven? Uh, no. We are covered by the blood of Christ. That's our, that's our own hope of getting to heaven, is that uh, we can be covered by his shed blood. And he'll turn to the Father and say, my blood covers him or her. Uh, Does that mean that we, we have to experience no transformation of, of character. Well, first of all, what does the blood of Christ represent? Well, what is it symbolic of? His life. His character. His, life. His, character. His character. Do we literally cloak ourselves and, 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 and our, our rotten hearts and our, our sin-scarred consciences and minds with, with, the, with the character of Christ and, and cover up our iniquity? Uh, and it's Tim's kind of candy-coated rotten apple theory, where you, you put a nice coating on a rotten apple, and it looks good from the outside, but you cut into it or bite into it, and it's filled with worms. Or do we take the life character, the, quote, blood of Christ, and etern- internalize it and allow it to, to heal us and transform us from the from the inside out so that we... We're not just covered by the robe or the blood of Christ. It's, it's living and breathing and healing within us. Except you drink my blood and eat my flesh, there's no life. Right. Was he talking about vampirism and cannibalism? Or was he speaking in symbols? Of course, he's speaking symbolically. Since we brought up the, the, the idea of being just, when we break a law here in Tennessee or in the United States, the United States code of justice is based on what? Laws. I mean, it's a law. And- it's based on the laws of the government, of the state, or, or the country. Innocent until proven guilty. <laughs> Innocent until proven guilty. Thank you. With the government of heaven, what are its laws based on? God's character. The government of heaven. The government of love. The character of God. The nature of God. The love of God. The grace of God. Does does the justice of a government of love demand death, or does it demand healing? Of course, it has to demand healing. How can a loving God demand death? Death is the result, the consequence of breaking the law. It's not an imposed penalty. It's not an imposed punishment. It's a result of of divorcing yourself from the only source of life in the universe. That is only as good as a person's willing to receive that. Yes. 
life, then there is death. Without the acceptance of the healing. Correct. Absolutely. Here again, back to the healthcare model. If you come to the physician, he correctly diagnoses you with pneumonia, and he says, he hands you a piece of paper. This is a prescription for Cipro, which is a strong, broad-based antibiotic. And you take the piece of paper, and you read it, and you really believe that that's what's going to heal you. Is it going to help? What if, what if, what if you water the piece of paper and eat it? Is that going to help you? No. One must fill the prescription, and if you fill the prescription and take the bottle home and look at the bottle and read the bottle and you read all the side effects and you think, hmm, those don't look too good. I'm just going to keep looking at it. I believe the doctor, and I still believe that it's going to help me, but I'm not going to take it. What happens? You still have pneumonia. It's only if you internalize it. Internalize the healing remedy. Yes, sir, in the back. Question was whether it was just for uh, you know for Jesus to die you know, in place of us. Um, Jesus brought up that fact when he said, uh, "Greater love hath no man than this," but that he laid down his life for a friend. Um, just just because somebody dies in the process of saving other people does not mean that their death was unjust. It actually was would be considered even more just because it's based on love. <clears throat> Correct. Absolutely. I don't see Christ's death as unjust. It's unjust to the idea that God put his son to death. That's inconsistent with a loving God. Yes? I was reading in Isaiah, and it was kind of interesting, uh, going along this theme, Isaiah uh, 1, starting at verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a harlot? She once was full of justice and righteousness, and used to dwell, I, and used, I mean, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murders. Your silvers become dross, your choice wine is diluted with water, your rulers are, rebel, are rebels, companions of thieves, they all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, I will get relief from my foes. I will avenge myself on my enemies. How does he do that? The next part says, I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in the days of old, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you'll be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city, and so on. And here's a direct evidence. The Lord is upset. He avenges, but he doesn't avenge in the way we actually think. He avenges by making us better. By purifying us, by healing us, exactly. Uh, you know, Elsewhere, he says, you know, would that the nations would turn to me, and I will heal them. One, one more, and then we want to move on to Tuesday's lesson. It means that God is bringing us back into harmony with his character and his law. Exactly. Yes, sir. <clears throat> I think uh, part of the discussion is getting to heaven, uh, the blazed apple, rather than uh, the love of God, meaning uh, walking the talk, so to speak. Uh, in Matthew 25, you have to uh, envelop your life in doing good deeds and you know, living the life that is set out for you to live. Okay. I would suggest that the good deeds and the living the life that was set out for you are a consequence, 
a, a result of the transformation that occurs when you allow Christ to live in your heart daily. You know, Paul says, it's not me, but Christ is living in me. That, that's, what, that's what transforms the character. That's what heals the character. Um, on Tuesday's lesson, in the second paragraph, I'm going to read the whole thing. And there, there's, a, there's a part in the middle there that is loaded. The idea that Jesus Christ died in our place so that we will not suffer, suffer eternal death but become partakers of life that he offers is usually referred to as a concept of substitution. To many, this is an abhorrent idea. Uh, I would include myself in that. They do not like the legalistic language often used or the concept of divine wrath against sin. But whatever we may like or dislike, the grandiose truth is that God has dealt with this sin problem in the way he decided was suitable. Being just, he could not ignore ignore sin. Being love, he could not abandon the sinner. We should have paid the penalty of eternal death ourselves because we are the guilty ones. But Jesus was willing to take our place. This is what happened at the cross. The actual event, that of his substitution in our stead, became the basis for our redemption. Amen, yes. My uh, primary issue is with the sentence that being just, he cannot ignore sin, and being loved, he cannot abandon the sinner. In my opinion, this, this sentence is 180 degrees backwards, and I'll explain why. And I actually rephrased it to, to one that makes a lot more sense, and I want you guys to give me some feedback. I said, being just, he cannot ignore the effects of sin on the sinner. He had to intervene to heal them. Being love, he had to abandon the sinner. Once the healing remedy was completely and finally rejected, he had to let them go. Thoughts? He won't force himself on you. Exactly. Of course he won't. The, the key to the paragraph of their understanding, the author's understanding and your understanding is that the definition in the next sentence about there being a penalty for sin. Mm-hmm. Does sin truly have a penalty? Or does, it, does, or does sin have a wage or a result? And if you believe that the problem of sin is a penal issue that has to be punished, then you will come to a different solution for sin than if you believe that sin has its own results in our hearts and lives, and there needs to be something else done for that. Exactly. Yes. It also depends on how you define sin. If sin is something you do, or sin is a broken relationship. Okay. We often define sin or sins as the commodities that we see in ourselves and we see better in others, but these are symptoms of the infection. These are symptoms of a fear and a distrust. These are symptoms of the belief in a lie that causes the fear and distrust. The sins of commission and omission that we recognize are symptoms of the disease, just like fever, coughing, chills, body aches, or symptoms of the flu. Correct. It's a symptom, symptom of a relationship being severed from the only source of life in the universe, and it was severed because humanity believed the lie that you will not surely die if you eat the fruit. Yes, sir. 
perhaps the question as far as defining sin of somebody that do we define sin according to what Moses was given, or do we define sin as what Adam was told? The difference is that Adam broke a relationship. Moses was given a standard of defining sin. And we so often go to that, and that's the rule. Correct. That's how we define our sin, which is action, where Adam broke a relation, and that's what we do. That's all the, those ones that Moses was given was saying, here's how you keep a relation. And, and, or here's how you restore the relation. Restore the relation. I, I, exactly. There's, uh, there's another part in here that we should have paid the penalty of eternal death because we are the guilty ones. What choice did you have in being born a sinner? We've been over this before in here. None. You were born infected. A sin-infected mother and a sin-infected father came together, shared their chromosomes, and created a sin-infected being, you and me. We did nothing to incur this. This is not our fault. However, we are infected. And if we, if unintervened, we will die. Not only will we die in the sleep referred to by Christ and others, we will die eternally if we are not, if we do not allow the healing physician to transform us and to show us Everlasting life. Thoughts? Connie. I guess it's beyond me that as parents we can look at God and say he would do what we would never do to our own child. If that child was ill, out of no fault of their own, would we punish them for being sick? Right. Instead, we would love and try to find a way to heal them. How dare we say, God would not be even 10,000 times stronger. Right. You're absolutely right. There's nothing short of supernatural, the, dece- the deception that Satan has, has clouded humanity with, and, and the, the aspects of his own character that he has ascribed to a loving father. It's, it's beyond comprehension. All right. Um, I want to jump back to Monday's lesson. There's a... Yes, sir. Uh, in, in most parts of the world, especially in uh, Muslim countries, the, the idea of substitution is profoundly derived. And, and if you even begin to suggest that God could step in, into your place and, and replace whatever consequences or whatever, uh, because of sin or because of the law or whatever, they they'll give you a really really hard time. What what God actually did, in my view, is He changed the paradigm on which we have to operate as self interested human beings. There, if I didn't get up every day and act in my own self interest, number one to keep my health. Number one, to earn some money, to pay things off, whatever, to live. I would be in big trouble. So I've got to act in, in my self-interested way. Okay? God made the whole thing of being, acting in, in your self-interest harmonious 
with acting in the interest of, of his best interest for us, as well as the interests of, of everyone else in the world. In other words, he made it, he made it a, a complete circle. He made the, the, the whole cycle of life complete in that. So that's, that's what really happened when Christ made that sacrifice. And, and if he, he substituted for me because I couldn't do that for another human being. I'm just a human being just like you are. But if God stepped in and said, I'll make up this, this missing link, this gap, then, you know, in a sense he substituted because no one else could, could do what he could do. But that's the only way that he substituted for us, as far as we're concerned. Okay, thank you. In Monday's lesson, there's another uh, symbol of the picture of grace and, and the, the process of salvation that's used. It's a symbol of being ransomed. We often use that synonymously with a legal payment. What, what does it mean to be ransomed? Okay, good. To be set free. Excellent. Does payment have to be made if you're ransomed? I mean, we commonly think of someone, you know, the guy that was kidnapped uh, by the pirates. We commonly think of he, he was held for ransom. The, the, the pirates wanted money. What they got were sniper bullets, but but they were were wanting money. Um, I I was pondering this uh, ransom theme, and I like to travel to serve. I, I, I've gone to some some countries where I could have been kidnapped. I could have gone to Peru, Indonesia, several places where Americans are somewhat less than. Um, Welcome. If I had ever gotten taken captive, and I imagine that I got taken captive and I got put in a room, and I was told by my captor that if I stepped outside of the room, I would be shot. No questions asked, no quarter given. If I believed that, and they provided for my needs okay, then I'd stay in the room. If someone came and knocked on the door, and I think I thought, well, the door's locked. Why? Why would they be knocking on the door? They have the key, so I ignore the knock. A little while later, another knock. Finally, my curiosity gets the best of me. I go and I turn the doorknob, and it actually turns, and the door opens. And there's a man standing there. He says, "Come with me. I'm, I'm going to set you free." If I don't believe him, I'll shut the door go right back to my cot and wait for my next meal or glass of water. And if he persists and I step out and I actually open the door wide enough to see that there's no one else out there, when I start to follow him, and then when I get out of the building, I'm in a marketplace and I see soldiers walking by with AK-47s, I think, oh, there's the guys that come to shoot me. So I run back in the room. And this pro if this process continues till I finally get to the point where I'm beyond fear for my life and I'm beyond seeking to meet my own needs and I finally realize I've believed a lie. I was being held captive by my belief in a lie. There was no one out there waiting to shoot me. 
I think this is a, a, a better metaphor for the idea of us being ransomed from from slavery, from the from the hold the sin had on us, than it is that someone actually paid money to set us free, paid money to our captor to set us free. Because Satan has not been paid. We've been held captive by belief in a lie. Thoughts? That's how the kingdom of heaven can start now. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Right. This is life eternal. Where is the nature of trust? You have to trust the one who says you are free. Exactly. If so, if someone came came to the door you know, holding an AK-47 and said, step out, probably wouldn't believe him. One more thought. I think the deception is more than just for us ourselves, though. It's the angels in heaven. It's the rest of the universe that has to see, oh, this Jesus' ransom was to show the rest of the universe that we are free to choose. Correct, and I, I believe... It wasn't for us, it was for the angels, because they haven't sinned. Exactly. And their minds were set at Calvary. The only beings left in, in, in the universe who had not made a decision one way or the other were humans. And now, in the 2,000-odd years since Calvary, we have been revealing to the rest of the universe the transforming in healing nature and capabilities of the life of Christ. When Christ told his disciples, when, when they were talking about the miracles that he had wrought, he told them plainly, you will do greater things than this. We humans have the ability now to show the rest of the universe what, it, what it's like to take a character that is filthy and scarred with sin and to show what it is like to be transformed by the healing character of Christ. He gave us our choice and made the choice clear which, which way to go. Yes. All right. One last announcement before we uh, split up. Tim has written his second book, and he's taking it uh, to a publisher. Editors is reading over the book uh, this coming Wednesday. So he, he wants to enlist our thoughts and prayers for guidance with that process. So take that home with you. Eternal Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for being a God of freedom and a God of grace and a God of forgiveness and that these are these are free gifts and these are these are revelations of your character this is who you are and thank you for allowing your son to come and reveal that character fully and we ask your continued guidance in our lives and continued entreaties of the Holy Spirit to get us to accept the free gift of grace and salvation in the name of Jesus amen Thank you all. Have a great week.